0: Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick, Push, Pivot podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth.
1: And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. All right. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Kick, Push, Pivot. I am here, as always, with my co-host, uh, Pete Mackey, a.k.a. Bowtie Mackay. He's actually got his bow tie on today. So say what's up to the people today, Pete.
0: Uh, great to have you back on the show. Here, Alex, my co-host. I must say, I am the better-looking half today, anyway.
1: <laughs> he's, he's very handsomely dressed, I'll tell you that. Um, And we've got a great show for you today. We've got Mr. Daniel Hawkins on. Uh, Daniel is the CEO and founder of Avail Med Systems, which is a healthcare technology company. So welcome, Daniel.
2: Thanks very much for having me. Great to see you both today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for being on. Appreciate you being here. Um, and just for the viewers out there listening, I'm sure um, you would like to speak a little bit about Avail. They would like to know a little bit about it. So can you tell us a little bit about what Avail Med Systems is?
2: Sure, what uh, what I've done at Avail is is built a team that has created a technology that is essentially a communications network. You should think about it as telemedicine for the operating room. And the reason why that matters is because Healthcare is by its very nature a practice, and expertise is by its very nature wanting to be shared. The problem, of course, is in operating rooms, you can't always have the people there that you need when you need them. So we built a network and a method of connecting to that network so outside folks can have access to the operating room for five minutes or five hours or whatever's necessary simply through an app-based, portal-based model, and they have what amounts to a customized in-room experience without actually being there
1: that's awesome and is that just so that, to clarify is that for uh reps that are looking to be in the operational room like sales reps or is that for other doctors how does that work
2: It's actually for both. So, uh, industry spends about $40 billion a year, the medical device industry, um, on the sales representatives that cover procedures and, uh, in hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers all over the country. About half of that is wasted in physical logistics. So our technology enables them to not waste that time. And instead the exact same group of salespeople, reach more customers for support. And in the medical device business, support equals revenues. So uh, that is a terribly important thing for the medical device salespeople and those companies. For physicians, by nature, they want to collaborate. I'm the son of one myself, and it's just the nature of, of, uh, I'll say, that career choice that you want to collaborate, and there's great opportunity to do that when you can be there. For the first time ever, you can be there even if you're not there physically.
0: Yeah, I like that. So what you're saying is uh, you're removing the planes, trains, and automobile portion of the experience, huh? That's exactly
2: right. And the amazing waste of time, over half the time spent for somebody trying to visit a hospital as a sales rep is in physical logistics. And frankly, docs are busy enough that they don't go somewhere if it's not easy. And uh, we eliminate all of that and make it super easy to collaborate across cities, states, or even countries.
1: Yeah, not to mention with COVID, at least it's in, uh, in Pete and I's experience, with COVID, they don't even want us to come into the office, really. Right. I mean, That's most right. of the time, they just want to set up a Zoom call or a phone call. They don't even want to risk, you know, like don't even come in here and risk. That's exactly right.
2: Exactly right. And, and, you know, during peak time periods with the ebb and flow of COVID, many, many hospitals have uh, blocked out all visitors. And I mean 100% of visitors, including collaborating physicians, just simply not allowed in the building. Uh, our, our platform has been used countless times to enable supportive procedures that really couldn't have been supported otherwise. And middle of the night phone calls where reps are able to use our system to help with a procedure for an emergency aortic rupture, which for those not familiar wow. is the equivalent of you've got about a half an hour to 45 minutes before the patient's going to expire. Uh, our technology has been used for um, for the support of a case that saved a patient's life. That's one wow. example of countless examples similar.
0: That's amazing. <clears throat> so really, it's it's kind of the a cutting edge device that really can save lives as well as save time. And yes, on, you know, all kinds absolutely, of
2: yeah. absolutely. And and in a world where healthcare is by no means the same, regardless of where you go. The main reason why I started the company after 25 years in the med tech space is uh, I know that depending on where you are in the country, the experience of the physicians that might be treating you might not include enough of the kind of procedure they're doing on you such that they've developed an expertise. So they'd like to phone a friend to help with some nuances. Right. The problem is that that friend might not otherwise be available through our platform. They are available and and through that platform, uh, what we're able to do is level up care based on the expertise of, of physicians, uh, really around the country and ultimately around the world. Uh, and that is not to say that there are folks, uh, or I should say, uh, physicians or hospitals that don't know what they're doing. I'm not suggesting that there's varying levels of experience and. A, uh, a center like Stanford, by way of example, might see 15 of a very difficult type of a case every two or three months. And a physician that is not in a place like Stanford, but maybe even still in the Bay Area, only sees one a year.
1: Wow. Wow! You'd yeah. like
2: to level that out, right? So you'd like to have the expertise available at the moment a patients on the table. That's what our system's about.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that you're seeing adoption of technology an accelerated pace. And this is just another tool in the tool belt of medical practices, hospitals, places like that, yes. because we're starting to pivot towards patient outcomes, as you probably are yep. well aware. And anything that can improve patient outcomes is super hot right now, whether it be yes. a technology, a software, um, a device, whatever that is. So, And my understanding also is that um, you also developed another groundbreaking technology called Shockwave back in the day.
2: I, I did I did Isn't that your was first a, rodeo
0: and innovating? Uh, no
2: no it's not this is in fact my ninth startup Holy uh, this is the uh, this is the third one that I am a co-founder or founder of uh, my my most recent one prior to avail is in fact a company called shockwave and there's an interesting story behind that I uh, back in about '04, I was asked by a couple of venture firms to join a few engineers in the Seattle area. I was living in, in uh, Maryland at the time. And our charter was a strange one. We were given a couple of million bucks and we were asked to come up with uh, unmet medical needs. That was my job. I was the marketing guy. And we were either supposed to invent or in-license technology to meet those needs. So the first one we did was an insulin delivery technology that was acquired by Johnson and Johnson uh, and it's it's a skin worn patch pump that's used for, for diabetics to manage their insulin requirements. Uh, Johnson Johnson ultimately divested that and it's now the, the leading product of a company called Secure, C-E-Q-U-R, which is really doing a phenomenal job with that. And I'm, I'm thrilled to see that technology now in the hands of patients and it's being used regularly, which is, uh, is really just terrific. But after I did that one, um, I, you know, the engineers taught me how to invent a little bit. Uh, I'm not technically trained, um, you know, working undergrad, Stanford business grad. So for me, this was new space. Uh, they taught me how to invent a little bit, and I came up with a hair idea that really mashed two clinical technologies, two medical technologies together. Uh, one was one that's typically used to break kidney stones, and another one was angioplasty. And I put the two of those together and ultimately uh, came up with the technology behind a company, the uh, public company that is uh, called Shockwave.
0: Amazing. And um, for those that are in the medical device space, Shockwave's has had some massive success over the years as well. So the harebrained idea actually did pan out. So that's a uh, congratulations, cool story. We look forward to seeing what uh, what Avail's
1: gonna do. Absolutely. Yeah, so let's actually rewind here a little bit and let's go back and talk about some of your background. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What uh, what kind of got you into this lifestyle of being a serial entrepreneur? Maybe tell us a little bit about, about your background there. Sure. Um-
2: so I have I have a little bit of a mixed bag on background, if you will. Born and raised in Philadelphia, um, the first house I remember living in was story two and three of a three story house, where the first one was my dad's medical practice. So wow. I was in and around entrepreneurship, if you will, and literally and medicine, literally, um, <laughs> you know, since since my very first memories. You know, we wow. moved out of that house, and and but he kept the practice, and. And I always got a sense of of, um, uh, the value of that intersection. And it it tugged at me a bit. What Mm -hmm. also tugged at me is this incredible relationship between what I do and what I can earn. And that's Mm -hmm. what I I watched my, my father with that, if you will. And I have other family members that have been entrepreneurs in the past. Um, you know, my my uncle uh, uh, actually is the reason why there are w- wicker baskets in the United States that came from Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Uh, he started hmm. that business back in nineteen seventy six or seventy four. Uh, first selling to to Pier One Imports, right back in the back
1: in the oh, earliest of early
2: days. Yeah, he Before literally Pier did that.
1: Imports. He's yeah, big, so uh, Pete is a Pete's a big uh, Pier One guy. I, I
0: did like Pier One. I <laughs> spent a lot of time at Pier One.
2: It's a, it's a there average. you go. There you go. Um, one of my memories, Pete, was actually unpacking the tractor trailers that came from Haiti and the Dominican Republic that No kidding. In baskets. So at ten, eleven, and twelve, I used to unpack those things. Um, yeah. But you know, I was in and around that, and and in the earliest of memories I have, my first entrepreneurial experience was a bit of an odd one. Um, you know, we, we had some property that had holly trees on it. For those not familiar what uh, what that is, I'm sure you would, you would see it and know what it is. Around Christmas time, it's those dark leaves with uh, thorns on the edge of it and the, and the little red oh, yeah. berries. Yeah, so um, I had to trim those. And when I trimmed the holly trees, I used to have to drag all the branches into the woods. I didn't like that very much because it hurt. Um, yeah, around that same time period, I, uh, I noticed that the, in front of supermarkets around, around Christmas time, they were selling bunches of them. So I decided to, I asked my dad, hey, can I go door to door like a Girl Scout selling cookies, but instead sell bunches of the holly that I just trimmed off of our tree? And he said, well, yeah, sure, you can do that. So I did. And I, I made really nice money doing that, uh, you know, at age 12 on um, about 1100 bucks and you know, back then given my current age of over
0: 50, that was real money. Uh, still real still money is. for a twelve year old. Still <laughs> still, yeah, my, still real money. My uh, daughter would love it to have a thousand bucks in her back <laughs> pocket. I would love to have a thousand bucks in my back pocket.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just say that's three of us. I, I think I've got. I don't quite have lunch money in the pocket at the moment, but um, you know, that's uh, you know, you got to you got to you invest in your business. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: You know, my my next one you had referenced pop rocks. You know that that gave way to. Oh, this is fun. What I didn't realize at the time is my inventory cost was zero, right? They were mm-hmm. tree clippings, right? And then I just used kite string and that's that was my inventory cost. So it was cool. Business was 100% profit. Well, that's not quite how it works, right? Yeah. So my, my next one, um, you know, there was a supermarket chain closing near us. And, um, you know, this is the pop rock story. They they uh, they would call out while you're in the market. Fill a shopping cart with anything you want for ten bucks. So I ran to the candy aisle. I mean, come on, I'm a kid. I ran to the candy aisle. So you're i a loaded, kid in a candy
0: store. Literally, exactly, literally. literally, literally, <laughs> literally.
2: So I I uh, I filled this shopping cart with Pop Rocks. I mean, it was literally spilling over. And uh, I uh, I paid ten bucks for it. So that was my inventory cost. And I sold them at school, two for a quarter. And I'll just say I did pretty well. That was a good ROI,
0: <laughs> a really good ROI. So that's so that's you, my top rocks You had you had inventory costs, but not that significant because you had all. The no, inventory.
2: no, my gross margin was ninety nine point eight percent or something ridiculous. There right? really you <laughs> uh, But you had enough you know,
1: money to take girls out to lunch. For, you know, to I, did, school. I
2: did. I <laughs> did. I did. And you know, the most significant part of that actually was I used the proceeds to buy my first Atari. Right, the thirty-two hundred, I think it was, if I recall correctly, the old school Atari with the cartridges. Right, so I bought an Atari and a bunch of cartridges off of some guy in the Kitty City parking lot with my mom standing next to me. (laughs) I paid cash. It was awesome. (laughs) Wow. Exactly. So you know, um, I stayed in Philly to go to business school at University of Pennsylvania. So, uh, working undergrad. And, you know, my, my parents had this deal with us. They'll send us to any school in the world we wanted to go to and they'll pay for it. Except we needed to pay for room, board and books. Now, when you pencil, that's actually some coin. That's not, that's not a little bit of money. And, you know, we were, we were four kids all at University of Pennsylvania, all at the same time. So my parents were serious about that. That was not a, we're going to loan you the money, pay us back later. That was a, this is the only way you can go to school. So this is a current income kind of thing. You need to go out and figure that out, (laughs) right? And uh, at least one of us, namely me, did not want to be working constantly. So I was looking for things to do. And I ended up, you know, through a bit of a bizarre route, seeing this kid with a bunch of keys on a chain that looked like bike keys. It turns out they were soda machines. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing leads to another. And he's got this business he doesn't want anymore. So I bought it from him. But I bought it with no cash because I didn't have it. Um, I gave him a couple hundred bucks because that's all I had at the time. i spent too much time hanging out you know, during college. So I spent all my earlier money. Um, so I ended up buying it with what turned out to be a leveraged buyout without realizing it. Uh, I, I grew the business. Uh, we grew it to several tens of thousands a year in, in revenue. Profit margins were 50 plus percent. And um, I ended up selling it for a nice coin before I left to a street vendor in Philadelphia, and went off to New York to do leverage buyouts for a living. So that's that was kind of next step.
0: Wow! It just gives me a window into your your uh, your health patterns. Buying
1: pop rocks by the pound.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go to stores. Oh
1: man! Yeah, totally your, dad, your dad's a doctor, and you end up selling candy and soda.
2: <laughs> exactly, and then I sold that business to a street vendor selling overly greasy Chinese food. <laughs> right? oh, wow. so not a good combination. Um, no. So you know, I was in uh, I was in New York for a couple of years, and I found myself uh, representing my fund as a, a member of the board of a uh, of a company uh, that was in the portfolio. And I was longing to be on the other side of the table, guys. That's what it was for me. I just. Mm-hmm. This it felt too far removed from the juice of creation and management and opportunity and uh, I just needed to be on the other side so I went back to business school and and candidly there's only one place on the planet I wanted to go. Uh, and, and so I applied out to Stanford and I applied to the Boston version of Stanford. Didn't like it as much. Um, so I went out to the real one and, um, I've been hooked since, you know, uh, it's, it's been entrepreneur hundred percent since then. I couldn't write out of business school, get into what I wanted, which was medical device, uh, startup because mm-hmm. nobody would have me. I didn't know anything, right? You know how that works, right? I mean, I, you know, I didn't know anything at all. So I cut my teeth in a large company for a couple of years and then started my entrepreneurial journey right there.
0: Wow, that's something. That's pretty cool. What are some of the biggest obstacles you faced uh, through this whole process? I mean, you mentioned you know money and experience. Is there anything else that you kind of bumped up against that would be useful for the listeners to, to know or hear about your journey?
2: Um, you know, my, my personal journey getting to where I wanted to go career-wise landed me in, um, in, uh, in, in some environments that taught me some things. But I would say for the audience, probably the most compelling would be some of the experiences we had at the companies I was in uh, uh, early on, right? So I had an opportunity to join um, uh, a guy by the name of Fred Mull, who, who was really one of the one of the uh, uh, most prolific entrepreneurs and most successful entrepreneurs in medical device is he's, he's on the short list there for sure. Uh, he's the founder of a company called intuitive surgical, which is a robotic surgery company um, before robotics existed in surgery. And Fred hired me as the sixth person at intuitive and Fred and I, and one other guy set the specs on the Da Vinci robot. And for those not familiar, that company's now, probably traded valuation somewhere in the $80 billion range, about a million procedures a year done using this robot that, you know, the surgeon sits away from the patient and operates uh, 20 feet away uh, mm-hmm. using this robot because it gives them more capability, him or her more capability than they would have on their own. While I was doing that with Fred, we ran into a couple of spots where it was a little sticky. And, you know, in the theme of, of the podcast here. Uh, Fred kickstarted it, the whole organization pushed, and we had a couple of time periods where we needed to take a pivot, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the least, we needed to take a pivot. Um, and, you know, the uh, the the push, if you will, uh, we had a couple of bet the company moments, technology-wise. Um, and one of those um, really centered around uh, something that you know, I'll, uh, for those not familiar with MedTech, I'll just generally say you got to see really well and and a robot vision is super important. Uh, we were trying to use some off-the-shelf cameras and it didn't work. A technology, right? We're trying to use some off-the-shelf technology. It didn't work, okay. not good enough.
1: <clears throat> got it.
2: And what we ended up doing is making our own. And that's an incredibly gutsy thing to do when there's... 20 years of people trying to do better than 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 uh, they had in the past and make make things that we thought would be good enough and they just weren't we've supposed in four months we're going to make something better than 20 years worth of dedicated effort by people who live and breathe this stuff
1: you're saying like cameras and certain things that would go on to the robotics system exactly so these are wow. cameras
2: that go into the body laparoscopic cameras And, um, here's the part that I think is going to be really important and valuable for, uh, for, for the listeners. There's an assumption that was made and the assumption made by every camera manufacturer before us was a human hand needs to hold it. So it can't be heavy. We didn't have that problem.
1: Hmm.
2: Ours just need to be less than 50 pounds, right? The regular ones that you'd otherwise use are about four pounds, four and a half pounds at most. So we created a 20 pound camera that was held by a robot. And by realizing that the robot was holding it, Fred Mull realized it. He said, wait a minute, the robot's holding it. We don't have limitations. We were able to solve it
1: in less than four months. Wow. That's pretty cool. The
2: the important part on that, and this is really important for, for those who are, are, are butting up against an obstacle, you got to test your assumptions. The mm-hmm. fundamental assumptions might be different in the world you're playing in than the world that preceded you. Giantly important.
0: That's awesome. I love and that. It's really incisive. Mm-hmm.
2: That, that yeah. lesson carried forward to a couple of things that informed me over at Shockwave. But the pivot, if you will, at, at, uh, at Intuitive was we started off in cardiac surgery. We sold some systems. We went public. And then the company wasn't doing well. Uh, the problem there was we thought it was going to be great for that usage. The physicians ultimately didn't agree because there was some complexities. I won't, I won't go into it. It's probably not appropriate in this audience, but, um, there were clinical complexities, but there was a physician who's in a, who, who operates, um, a urologic surgeon, you know, in the urinary tract and the like, he wanted to use it for prostate surgery. Uh, and he did. The company saw what he was doing, realized the value of it, and the, the company took off after they focused on it. It was a full, huh. hard pivot from cardiac surgery to prostate surgery. The company went from less than two bucks a share to now hundreds and hundreds of dollars a share, a valuation of less than 200 million, 150 million to 80 billion 20 years later. Wow.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, testing the assumptions and trying to. Pivot to something new. It reminds me of a good dad joke. Here we go. Oh my goodness. Here we go. (laughs) Dad joke time. You would would appreciate this since your dad's a physician. I'm not sure if he dropped any dad, any medical dad jokes, but you know, my assumption was I'd never want to be an organ donor, but then I had a change of heart.
2: <laughs> <Ba-dum-bum-bum>. <laughs> <Ba-dum-bum>.
0: <laughs> that was a good? One. That was a good. One. Anyway, but no, but seriously though, that's really interesting to hear uh that journey there. I I love that. Um, you know,
2: from there uh you, you guys had asked me, "Hey, what, you know, what have I learned? What what's uh what have I run up against? What are some of the obstacles?" Um mm-hmm. I had a passion ultimately Pete, to get into my own uh invention. Sort of space and company founding, and that's what I was. I was just driven. I had to do it, and I had this. You know, I would I would envision these devices, and I never really got the gumption up to try to do it myself. I just never thought I could. I thought I don't have the background. I, I'm not. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a doctor. How can I imagine I would do this? And I'd have these ideas, and then wait a little while later, two, three, four years later, there's a company doing what I thought about. And I'm like, yeah, so that's not okay. I got to do this again. I got to try this again. And that's how I ended up ultimately saying yes to the venture guys when they came to me and said, you want to do this for a living? We'll give you 2 million bucks and we'll check in in six months and see how you're doing. That was the deal. It was the strangest deal. And they just gave me money to go hunting. So we did. And that's how we started the first company that was acquired by J&J. and. That's how I invented what became with.
1: That's incredible. Wow. How is it? I mean, what is the mindset, I guess, between moving from one startup to another? Because I know that you're a serial entrepreneur. You've had a great success in multiple yeah. different companies. So how does that? I mean, and you probably could have made a career out of any one of them. So when, yes. at what point and for what reason do you say, you know what? I think I'm done here. I'm going to move on to something yeah. else. I love
0: that question. That is
2: a terrific question and uh there's some pathology there right I mean <laughs> it's not it's not normal to do what I've done I appreciate yeah. that. So um most of them were family related right so the intuitive surgical why didn't I stay there and and keep going you know one of the one of the first 13 people that went to the to the first human experience with the robot uh in a picture I've got on my desk here um was you know three people away from me in that picture he's now ceo he was he was a director of engineering at the time a guy called gary goodhart super super smart guy uh, uh one of the most capable people i've ever spent time with uh, i could have stayed at intuitive why did i leave uh, you know we had started a family my wife and i and we decided to move back east and mm. i was asked to join a company with the founder of amgen the uh genomics company and I thought that combination was really interesting. So I went to go ahead and do it. So it was opportunistic, a bit of family, but it was opportunistic. Each, each change since then was similar. I I think what you're in some respects asking is when you're running a company or involved a company that you started, what causes you to leave? Yeah. I I think that's what you're asking. Um, Yeah.
1: Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. sure you had some personal connection to it. If that, you know, that's your baby. That's how you started.
2: Yeah, I would say um, the hardest decision for me was leaving Shockwave. Hmm. Um, I started the company, or I came up with the technology. I tried to start it in 2009. And, you know, for those familiar in that time frame, nothing was getting funded. No. Uh, so is. it was really bad timing. <laughs> it was awful. Uh, so I bought the technology out of the incubator that I was doing, shut down the incubator and paid for the technology with my kid's college fund and
0: and the the way I like to tell. What did your uh, What did your wife think about that? Uh, yeah,
2: well, Pete, I was just gonna say the way I like to tell that story is the truth as <laughs> I told my wife afterwards. <laughs> so
1: yikes, risky business. Yeah,
2: uh, don't do that, guys. Guys out there, <laughs> don't do that. Ladies, out a piece there, of don't, advice for the listeners. <laughs> don't don't do that in reverse. Um, no, she she uh, she ended up being super supportive, but it was definitely a risky move. It's because I believed in it. So if there's anything I would tell the folks out there uh, listening here, if you believe in what you're doing and you're not drinking your own Kool-Aid, right? Gut check Mm, yourself. Make sure you're listening to the detractors, not with a, oh, they don't know what they're talking about here, but instead, listen, judge against. Are they really, are they telling you something you should be learning from? If yes, listen to them. If in the end you have good solid reason to continue to believe, keep believing and lean in. If you've got the gumption and the and the intestinal fortitude to lean in, do that. That's uh, that's the kick and push right there, right? In some respects, yeah. it's a hard push through that. I love um, that. You know, when I uh, uh, when I when I uh, uh, then continued, if you will, with Shockwave, we were we were doing that one while nights and weekends while I was doing something else. And in 2012, I took over. So when I left in 2017, uh, that was tough. That was really tough. Why did I leave? Um, fundamentally, I saw after, at that point, 20 plus years in the industry, the broken communication problem that avails fixing. I saw it and I, and I just couldn't, I couldn't stand it anymore. Mm-hmm. It was one of these, um, there's a need there. It's screaming. And I've got this sort of thing about me where if I see that a problem is there and I can fix it, and in the healthcare world... In fixing it, I'll end up bettering care, right? Bettering health care. Right. I have a responsibility to do it. I just got to do it. So yeah, that's for sure.
1: And then you started this, that business um, before COVID even happened. And then COVID yes. happens and it just turns out, it just so happens that this idea that you had happens to be perfect for the times. Um, it, that just seems kind of like almost divine intervention. Like this is what you were supposed to do probably felt exactly. that way for
2: you. Yeah, it did. It really did. I did start it in 2017. And, and you know, mind you, I left Shockwave before it went public. So this was one of these, I'm leaving my, you know, my my uh, fifth child, if you will. Uh, sure. as a, as a, I have four kids. So uh, yeah. You know, it was a fifth child, if you will, as a company. And uh, I'm doing, I'm leaving to go start something else. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's edgy. It's It's very far outside of my normal comfort zone. But I knew, that it had to happen. And you know what, fast forward three years with COVID, it's been an explosion.
1: That's incredible.
0: Amazing. Well, uh, as we round up the show today, uh, do you have any party advice, any nugget of wisdom to give our audience? We, we picked out a yeah. couple already along the way. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so, um, you know, I would say that, uh, first and foremost is the, is the, uh, uh follow your passions. Um, I, I am absolutely passionate about making a difference in healthcare. And when I see an opportunity to do that, I, I'm passionate about it. I, I'm a mission-driven guy. You know, my mission for Shockwave was a clinical one. My mission for Avail is uh, equally clinical, but also, um, you know, uh, providing access in ways that you can't otherwise. Um, you know, the, the other, I guess, piece of advice I'd offer is, When you're faced with a challenge uh, that you think is daunting, check your assumptions, one. And two, remember why you're doing it. Remember what's on the other side. Why did you start? Mm -hmm. And at the moments that you're kind of deep and dark in the foxhole, why did you start what you're doing? And if you still believe that, find a way to push through. Uh, With the right people around you, you can get that done. And that's what I've consistently found is you're able to do that. Um, uh, the last sort of element I'd add is, is, uh, at a veil, we, we, we kicked, we pushed and our pivot was a whole lot of negative noise, trying to counter detail against us from competitors. Uh, I, my advice there would be don't fall prey to the response mechanism that you'll want to have against negative junk from competitors. Stay true to who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, we're finding that the, that the market is realizing us staying true to who we are, uh, why we're doing it and we're winning, we're crushing left and right. Because what we didn't do was stoop down to the, uh, the gritty negative that our competitors are playing against us.
0: I like that. Mm-hmm. I think mean, it's good stuff. It's yeah. good stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And enduring my dad jokes, those are always a uh, push through. speaking of the podcast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Daniel. This has been great. I think the, the viewers are really going to get a lot out of this one.
2: I appreciate the uh, opportunity and uh, thanks again, guys.
1: Absolutely. And thank you all to the listeners out there. Feel uh, be, be sure to like, follow and subscribe on all the social medias and we will see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening.
1: Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.